It's a great last line. With confidence, I now draw nigh, and Father, Abba, Father, cry. Once enemies, under condemnation, and now through the work of Christ, redeemed and adopted into the family of God. It's fantastic. Thanks for leading us in that and, uh, and preparing our hearts so well for what God has to say through his word. Pastor Rick is in, is in San Diego this weekend serving uh, at a conference there, and so I have the privilege of being able to open God's word with you, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, for those who may be visiting or don't know, I'm Pastor Aaron, one of the pastors here, and uh, it's... Um, it's fun. Usually I'm there doing that, and then we all just play shuffleboard with our, with our responsibilities, and so it's a lot of fun. Am I the only one, or did, did any of you have those, um, you know, those WWJD bracelets? Feels like it was like a couple decades ago now, maybe, but anyway, I had, I had one of those. When I was in Jerusalem 13 years ago after college, I, um, I bought a, a souvenir ring and I had the, the Hebrew text for the equivalent of the idea of walk worthy carved into it. You know, sometimes I, I tape verses or passages or thoughts on, on a piece of paper up in the, the corner of my car dash or you know, on the mirror in the bathroom when you're brushing your teeth. Um, and I look, at, I look at this, my wedding ring. And I think of, of my wedding ring, and I think of all those things, the, 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 the ring, the, the bracelet, the, the verses taped to the dash, and I think of what they are designed to do, and they're all designed to be reminders, right? They're designed to provoke a remembrance within me of, of the things of Christ, things of a sanctified life, walk-worthy, uh, memorization that needs to happen, God's word that needs to be put into my heart. The, the fact that I have both made and received vows of marriage. And yet all too often these things fade into the static of life and become just, just a bracelet, just a ring, just a piece of paper that my eyes hardly register as I'm brushing my teeth or driving along the road. And so sometimes it takes some intentionality at times to refresh ourselves as to the significance and the reason for these things. And one of the reasons I enjoy doing a wedding, we did a wedding here yesterday, one of the reasons I enjoy doing or attending weddings is because it provokes me to a remembrance, which I then am refreshed as to the, the significance of my own ring. You know, what, what does this stand for? What does it remind me of? But if we don't stop at times to consider the significance of things like this, uh, then I'm afraid they're, they're doomed to just fade into a rejected and uh, meaningless existence. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's table later this morning. And it's also designed to provoke remembrances within us. And yet even that can sometimes become just sort of part of the Christian scenery of our lives, and uh, we can allow its significance to diminish over the course of time and over the course of even just our increased familiarity with it. And that's one of the worst tragedies of lost significances. So my goal this morning is for us to just stop, to stop for a moment and to intentionally refresh ourselves as do some of the significance and reason for the Lord's table. So turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 19 through 25. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. It says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Pray with me. Lord, we have just read from your word, your very words to us. The strength and impact of this morning is not in my words, but it is in your word and it is in the work of your spirit. So I beg of your mercy and your grace that you would have your spirit work in us this morning to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be convicted, to recognize the truth of what you have to say and the joy of it, the wonder of it. Would you please work that through your power and your might and help me to be a vessel for you in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text that we just read, the writer of Hebrews gives us five reminders at the Lord's table. Five reminders at the Lord's table. The first one is there in verse 19 and 20. And it's the reminder that we have confident access to God. When he says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, he's saying, look, remember what Christ did and remember what it acquired for you, and that is confident access to God. And that may not mean a whole lot to some of us. It may not strike us as maybe it did strike those listening to the letter, listening to the sermon. You see, we're used to being able to access most things almost any time and anywhere we want to, even if it is just by the proxy of the internet. And we think enough money will get us into whatever place we want, or enough, if we yell loud enough, then that'll get us the access that we want, or um, if we have enough tech savvy, then we can get wherever we want. But in this context, the writer is addressing Jews of the early church. Jews of the early church with a background of Old Testament understanding and familiarity. And he's been drawing a contrast throughout this letter, a contrast between the shadow of the old Mosaic covenant and then the realities of the new covenant in Jesus. See, in those days, in the Jewish culture, the idea of confident access to God was preposterous. It was unheard of. The people had it, initially they had some access to God at Sinai. And their response to that exposure was just abject 
terror of the holiness and majesty of God. And they said, no, 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 we don't want that. Moses, you go talk to God. And the result of Moses having access to God was, was such that his face then shone with glory in such a way that he then had to hide that with a veil. And after the establishment of the tabernacle and later on the temple, there was only one who had access to God's presence, to the Ark of the Covenant, to the Holy of Holies, which is where God resided with his people. There was only one person who had access to that presence, and that was the high priest. And he did it once a year. And he did it with great preparation, with great even fear and trepidation over what he was about to do. Look back real quick in Leviticus chapter 16 with me. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Okay, third book in. Leviticus chapter 16. This is, this is what went on when it comes to this day of approaching the presence of the Lord. Now, in verse 1, chapter 16, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. This is any time outside of the prescribed time. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And then here are his instructions. Verse 3, Aaron shall enter the holy place with this, with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, he shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarments shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash, and attired with the linen turban. These are the holy garments. And then he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and his household." If you skip then down to uh, chapter uh, verse 11, then Aaron shall offer the bowl of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and his household. And he, sh he shall slaughter the bowl of the sin offering which is for himself. He shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise he will die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat and on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And, and it even goes on. Flip back to Hebrews with me. This idea, though, of confident access was just unheard of. In fact, even for the high priest, look at what was incumbent upon him. You have to wear this. You have to wash this. You have to kill this. You have to sprinkle this. And you have to do this or else you will die. The, the Jewish perspective towards access of God, even by the high priest, is reflected in this statement by a Jewish rabbi. He says this, According to the account of our rabbis preserved in the Talmud, 
the high priest wore a rope around his waist as he made his way absolutely alone into the Holy of Holies. This is, this is not obviously prescribed in Leviticus, but this is something that they did as a result of what they saw in God's prescriptions. The rope he wore served a very practical purpose because in the event that the high priest said or did something wrong, it was generally believed that he would be struck dead for his offenses. Yes, right then and there. And since only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, the rope enabled his assistants to safely pull the corpse of the high priest out of the inner sanctum in the event of a mishap. That's the kind of access to God, the kind of access through the veil into the Holy of Holies that was in the mind of Jews of that day. And so when, when the writer says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, boldness to enter the holy place, this is a big deal. This is a, this is a paradigm shift. Because that was access to God in the minds of the Jews, what we just discussed. And that, that access was not for everyone, and it was not bold or confident. And yet, we have confident access. We can boldly walk into the very presence. We can boldly be in the very presence of God, but not because we've done anything special or because we are anything special. We have that access because it's been purchased for us. This is one of the things that the Lord's table is meant to remind us of. It has been, this access has been acquired on our behalf with a price. The price of the blood of the Lamb of God. For generations, access to God was limited and was fraught with fear. Because of the sinfulness of priests and because of the ineffectiveness of the sacrificial system, the temple veil stood between the common man and God's presence. And for the vast majority of that time, the access was strenuously limited. But then Jesus died on the cross. His blood was shed. His flesh was broken as God's wrath on sin was poured out on him. And verse 20 tells us that a new and living way was inaugurated us was inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. When Jesus died on the cross, things changed. When his blood was spilled and his body was broken, everything was different. In Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51, say that said Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. As surely as that veil was torn, fell away, and opened access to the inner room of the temple, so surely did the tearing of the flesh of Jesus Christ in his death open up access to God. Paradigm changer. But it was not just any way. This is a new and living way, and it was an exclusive way. Jesus himself claimed to be the way, the life, and the truth. And then he follows that statement up by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. So a new and living way has been opened up, but it is a limited way. 
That way is only through Jesus, only through his blood and his flesh and his work on the cross and his resurrection. So if you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus as the crucified and resurrected Savior, then this access is not open to you. Not everybody can just come to God because you must go through Jesus Christ. He has purchased access, but it's only open to those who partake of his flesh and his blood in faith in his work. You can repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus right now, and bang, you have boldness in your access to God. But if it's not through Jesus, there is no access. But for those of, that, of us that have placed our faith in Christ, this is one of the things that, that the table, the Lord's table, needs to remind us of. We don't need to fear coming to God. We don't need to tie a rope around our waist and say, say, hey, hold on to me as I go to church to come before God and to worship him. Because the access to God has been opened through the shed blood and torn flesh of Jesus Christ. So we don't need to fear coming to God. In fact, we should revel in the privilege of being able to come to God. Because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, we can come to God. Let us never forget that. Let us never think that God is cold toward us. Because he says, I made a way. I sent my own son to die, to open up a way to me. He's not cold toward us. He does not reject us when we come in faith. Let us never think that God shuns us. Because you have to look at the price that was paid in order to open up the way to God. In Christ, there is access, and it is bold access. It is a perfectly paid-for access to God. And that's the first thing that the Lord's table needs to remind us of. But what we're doing this morning is not some sort of exhaustive or comprehensive list. Okay, so this is not all of the significance of the Lord's table, but these are things that it's good for our hearts and our souls to be reminded of, even as we get really ready to take that later. Number two is this. We have a perfect and eternal mediator. Look at verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we have a perfect and eternal mediator. Job 9.33 echoes a universal need. When he cries out, he says, Oh, there is no arbiter between us. Talking about Job and God. There is no arbiter or mediator between us that he might lay his hand on both. Job is saying, there's God over here and there's me over here. And I've got no go-between. That's what the high priest represented in his work throughout the years. But it didn't actually have that effect, if you look back in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10 in Hebrews, look there with me. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 says this, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? 
because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. So you can see those were, those were a reminder of sins and a reminder of the need for cleansing and a need for atonement. But the Lord's table that we're going to come to later should remind us that we have in Christ the answer to Job's cry. Oh, that there was someone who could come between us and, 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 and bridge the gap between us. And Jesus stands in that gap right now as our great priest and says, I, I serve as the link in my blood and, and having given you my perfect righteousness, I serve as the link between God and man, a perfect and eternal mediator. Hebrews is full of commendation of Christ as the, the eternal priest, the eternal high priest who has a finished work that is indicated by him sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And so there's no need to, to be concerned about whether it was enough or, or whether it will last because it is final and it is complete. If you look back in Hebrews chapter 9, let's look at some of those, those truths. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 1 says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold and which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. That's the, as we know, the Ten Commandments and more. And, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Now when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle performing the divine worship. But into the second, this is what we're talking about, this contrast, into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, as a sinful man, and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they only relate to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered to the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Look at verse 20, uh, 24. 
For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, And after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin, to those who eagerly wait for him. There there is so much there. But the main point is that Jesus has done it. Jesus has once and for all, through his blood and through his flesh, accomplished access to God and stands as the mediator, as the priest between God and man, that the likes of which had never been before. And Jesus didn't just pay the price and then ride off into the sunset. You know, I've, I've done my job. I'm never going to be seen or heard from again. He didn't do that. He paid the price, and now he serves as mediator. He stands, sits at the right hand of the Father, serving as the bridge between holy God and sinful man. But again, it's not just any man. Jesus doesn't serve as the mediator between God and all men. He serves as the great priest over the house of God. Hebrews 3, verse 6 says, But Christ was a faithful son was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Christ serves as the perfect and eternal mediator for those who have placed their faith in him and live a life of faith in him. So this access and the presence of the mediator is limited to those who have placed their faith, have repented and have placed their faith in Christ for the children of God. I am not your mediator. Pastor Rick is not your mediator. The elders are not your mediator. No conference speaker or podcast preacher is your mediator. Wives, your husband is not your mediator. Jesus himself is our mediator, the high priest who bridges the gap between us and God, and he provides access, he provides covenant relationship for those who place their faith in him. And these are wonderful reminders that the Lord's table should bring to our hearts and to our minds, for as we take communion, we remember the shed blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus on our behalf, where once there was no access and where once there was no mediator, now there is bold access and a perfect and eternal mediator on our behalf. However, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear that there are some actions that stem from these realities as well. The Lord's table should not only remind us of what Christ has done, but it ought to remind us of who we are to be and what we are to do in response to Christ's work. That's why he says, since we have confidence to enter by the blood and the flesh. And since we have a great high priest, then he says three, let us do, let us do, and let us do. And so the next three reminders are are ways that the Lord's table ought to 
ought to be a reminder for us in how to live. It, the Lord's table is not just some, some cutesy little ceremony. The Lord's table is, there, there, there are life-changing, heart and behavior-modifying truths in the ordinance of communion. And so our third reminder here is this, that we should worship rightly. There's, there's an old praise song that says, uh, come, now is the time to worship. Come just as you are before our God. The writer of Hebrews has a, has a little bit of a difference with that. Doesn't approve of that line. He doesn't say that since Christ's work has secured access, bold access, we should just waltz on up without a care in the world, living however we want, and we just say, well, hey, Jesus made it so I can come to God. And we can approach him in any way we want to and any state of existence that we want to. He, the writer of Hebrews doesn't say, come as you are to worship. He says, come the right way to worship. And what does that look like? It's in verse 22. Let us draw near. That's worship terminology. That is, remember, put yourself in their, in their shoes. This is drawing near to the Holy of Holies. This is drawing near to the presence of God, which was, which was a worship setting of, of giving praise, of giving sacrifice, of, of, of prayers and incense and all those types of things. So let us draw near in worship with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what does this right way to worship look like? It looks like this. It looks like a sincere heart, a heart that is true to him. One of my favorite commentators, his name is Lenski, he says, God always looks at the heart, our inner self, the seat of the mind and the will. His eyes penetrate through and through it. Hence, we have the admonition to come with a, a true heart, one that is not false, hypocritical, merely pretending and making a profession that is not warranted by sincere intentions. This is typified by King Hezekiah. This was his, his claim when we read in Isaiah 38, in those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet the son of Amos came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in, in truth, in sincerity. How I have walked before you with a whole heart, no division. He, not, not a competition of allegiance and, and, and loyalty and love and faithfulness. Remember, O oh Lord, how I've walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And the Lord's response is, I have heard your prayer and I'll extend your life and I'll protect you from these invaders. The right way to worship means with a sincere heart, one that is true to the Lord and to his way. Not just paying lip service, but giving life service. Genuine in the desire to please and to serve him and unhypocritical in its profession when compared with actions. And so you don't just come as you are, just as you are before your God. We have bold access and we have a perfect mediator and yet we come, we draw near and we ought to draw near, but we ought to draw near in the right way. And so we got to check ourselves to make sure that when we come to worship God, we come with a sincere heart 
Because you know what? We might be able to fool one another. You might be able to fool your family. But you cannot fool God. And he knows the state of your heart. He knows where your inner loyalties and your inner loves and your inner faithfulnesses are. And he says, well, you draw with a sincere heart. It also means to draw near in the full assurance of faith. See, as we reflect on Jesus, what he's done and what he is currently doing now, our faith should be filled with assurance because our faith is based on him, right? Not on us. Our faith is based on who Jesus is, his shed blood, his broken flesh, and the fact that he right now sits at the right hand of the throne of the Father and and serves as our mediator. And that should fill us with the full assurance of faith. The truth of the Bible overwhelms life's circumstances, brothers and sisters. If we apply it and diligently think it through, we can see that the truth of the Bible overwhelms life's circumstances when we are assured of the truths of those doctrines. If Christ has purchased our access, we can be assured of that access and nothing can block that. If Christ is our mediator and the new covenant is based on his blood, then we can rest totally assured that neither death nor life nor angels nor principality nor things present nor things to come nor height nor, nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we can be assured of that. And the Lord's table needs to remind us that we have, that's how we draw near to worship. It's saying, these are the truths of my God. These are the truths of my Savior. And I am fully assured of that, no matter what comes at me. See, God's character is worthy of that. The person and work of Christ is worthy of our full and settled assurance. Now, these two, these two ideas of, of drawing near with a sincere heart and a full assurance of faith, these, these, are, these are active and continual processes, okay? So don't, don't be overly discouraged if you don't have absolute sincerity of heart and if you don't have... Um, if, if you don't have absolute fullness of faith, don't be overly discouraged by that because it's a process. It's, it's a way that we're to continually keep coming and growing in those things. So if you see a flare of hypocrisy or a lack of sincerity or a wobbling of faith, it's not, it's not like you have to just pitch it all to the wind and say, well, I'm done. But we don't allow ourselves to be settled in that either. We don't allow ourselves just to say, well, you know what? I kind of have a divided life, but it's okay. Because I know what Christ has done, and so I give some of it to him and some of it to the other things in my life, and that's okay. But that's not. So the admonition then is to grow and to pursue sincerity, to grow and to pursue wholeness of of assurance of faith such that that is how we draw near. 
And so we cry out to the Lord and we say, Lord, I do believe. Please help my unbelief. Grow me into that full and complete assurance of faith. You discern your areas of sin and hypocrisy and you target them for destruction and for repentance and for confession. And you keep drawing near to the Lord via the access and mediation that you have available in Christ. So the right way to worship is with a sincere heart. It's with a full assurance of faith and a starting point of salvation. I believe this is what the writer is describing when he says, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. These describe past tense events. Okay, this is not an ongoing process. This is something that happened and has impact for the rest of our lives. It's the idea of, of having had our hearts sprinkled and having had our bodies washed, basically having been cleansed in salvation, that's how you draw near. We cannot enter the presence of God. You cannot worship God without that salvific cleansing. And so again, the Lord's table is a reminder that this is for believers. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you cannot worship God. Because you're an enemy and you're condemned because of your sin. And so if you haven't repented and placed your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then this access is not before you and you cannot come before God and worship because you need your whole being to be cleansed. And then the impact goes on from there. And in the Old Testament, those things were symbolically done as blood and water were sprinkled. And yet what is accomplished in Jesus is the fullness and the fulfillment of those things. It's, it's like what Ezekiel promised to the Jews in chapter 36. He said, then, the Lord is speaking, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the new covenant that we, folks, are grafted into as Paul describes in Romans 9 through 11. This is the, 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 the way of salvation and the opportunity to be saved that is the basis of our coming near to God in worship. And without that, there is no drawing near. In Christ, though, we are cleansed and washed and as such can come to worship rightly. Once we're sprinkled and washed, then the effect continues and we don't need full washing again. See, that's the idea. Having had our hearts sprinkled and having had our bodies washed, we don't need full washing and cleansing again, but it's a good point to remind us of what Jesus said in the upper room. That look, he who has been fully washed doesn't need to, to, to bathe again. They just, just needs, your, needs your feet washed. Okay. But he is completely clean. So we rejoice, brothers, sisters, in the complete cleansing that Jesus has accomplished. And we remember that cleansing as we celebrate the Lord's table. And we remember the access that we're granted. We remember the perfect mediator that we have. And we remember the resulting privilege, though, and the imperative then to come and to worship rightly. Not any old way we want to. The fourth reminder is this, we should persevere in the faith. This is one of the main goals of the letter of Hebrews as a whole. See, there are believers that he's writing to tempted to leave the faith, abandon the faith, and return to Judaism because of persecution and hardship. But throughout the letter, the author is saying, don't do that. 
persevere, press on, cling. And so he does that here based on the personal work of Christ. He says, since Jesus has purchased you bold access to God, and remember how unheard that was, and since Jesus is the perfect mediator on your behalf, we need to hold fast the confession of, of, of our faith, and we don't waver in it. Don't listen to the philosophies of the world and vastly on, on whether the truth of God is really truth. Don't encounter hardship in your life and begin to doubt the love and ability of God to bring you through as he has promised. You cling to your faith, the, the confession here being your agreement to the body of God's truth, and you hold fast to those things in the face of any circumstance in life. And frankly, we need reminders of that. And the Lord's table should remind you, ah, this is the personal work of Christ. This is what I base my faith upon. And so I remember, and I'm reminded to cling to faith, and I'm reminded about the hope that is in it all. Not only does God's truth bear us through life, but it bears us through life with a destination at the end. You realize that the Christian life is not just focused on living now, but it's focused on, on what is to come and then the impact that that has on living now. That destination that's on the horizon is a firm and joyous and beautiful and restored destination, one of eternal bliss and wholeness in the very presence of God. And we cling to it. We hold fast to that confession of hope. But you don't do it just because you're determined. You don't do it just because you say, oh, i got to do this and, and I'm strong enough and I'll just convince myself that I'll do it. You, you, you do it because God is faithful. See, look at that. You hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. God promised Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age. He delivered. God promised to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. He delivered. God promised a Messiah, one to save his people from their sins. He delivered the one who promised is faithful. God promises his presence. He delivered. God promises deliverance from sin. He has delivered and he will deliver. God promises eternity in heaven. He will deliver. The one who promised is faithful. And so we cling to the confession of our hope because God is faithful. So we say, no matter what comes against us, I know my God. And I know that he is not fickle. He is not weak, but he is faithful and true. And he is worthy of an unshakable hold. And so in those times when maybe we're wavering in our grip, the Lord's table needs to serve as a reminder to us, a refresher of the promises of God and his faithfulness to always deliver on those promises. Always. You often cannot say always or never, but God always delivers on his promises. And so the Lord's table should serve as a fresh infusion of strength into our hold on the confession of hope that is the Christian faith. Fifth, we should be, the Lord's table should remind us that we should be purposefully concerned for one another. 
See, that's, that's, that's kind of like the one that's a little bit of the oddball here, according to, I think, how maybe most of us approach the Lord's table. But the Lord's table should remind us that we should be purposefully concerned for one another because this is still coming off of the idea that since we have confidence to enter and since we have a great high priest, let us consider. So we should be purposefully concerned for one another. He conveys three components of this purposeful concern. The first is this, intentionality. So we need to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And, and it's not just considering uh, what's my method for stirring one another up, but it's considering one another. I, I know Bob. I know Kelly. I know John. Who are these people? And in their various contexts, how then can I come alongside them and provoke them to love and good deeds? And sometimes it takes a little provocation. But this is, this is, for example, one of the reasons why we do care groups here at Mission Road is because we want, the leadership of this church wants you to have the opportunity to really know one another. And in your knowing of one another, you need to be intentionally considerate of how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Now, take note, the writer doesn't really allow for relationships that remain in the realm of discussion of sports and weather. That's not to say you can't talk about the sports. The sports? Who says that? It's not to say you can't talk about sports and the weather, but he says your intentional consideration goes beyond that. See, the word for stir up is more like the idea of provoke. It's used often in kind of a negative way, but here it's really used for just to... to an avid consideration of how to spur one another on. It's, it's, this is what we need to be doing. Frank and Sally are in my church. They're in my care group. I know this about their life. I know this is an opportunity before them, or I know this is a way in which they're struggling. This is a circumstance that is bearing them down. How then can I come alongside Frank and Sally, bring truth to bear in their lives, and say, brother, you've got love and good deeds to do. This is how you do it. Come on. It, it, it takes intentionality. And why does that matter? Well, because this is why we've been saved. Titus 2 says that he, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So we're just trying to help each other do what Jesus saved us to do, to be zealous for good deeds. But we have to think about it. So it takes intentionality. It also takes presence, though. Look at this, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of a son. How are we to provoke one another and consider one another if we're not present with one another? Now, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here because here you are. But what if you're only here once a month? What, what, if, what, if, what if you come and... You sit right when the music starts and then you leave right when however we end the service ends. What if there is no presence? Then you can't honor the access that God has, that Jesus has purchased and you can't honor his role as high priest because you can't consider how to stir, to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. So you've got to be present in order to consider how to stimulate one another. And, and, 
you may feel like I'm getting all up in your kitchen. Well, remember, this was written to real people. The writer of Hebrews was getting in their kitchen and saying, hey, some people are forsaking the gathering. Don't you do that. You be here. Be with one another. It is, he, said, he says, don't, don't forsake it. Literally, like, don't abandon it. There's a privilege and a joy and a responsibility before each believer. Don't abandon that. Don't abandon your gathering of yourselves. It is crucial that you value and prioritize the gathering of the saints, the church. It is crucial that you take then advantage of those opportunities to be together and then seek to maximize those opportunities for intentionally considering how to stir one another up. And thirdly, there's an urgency to it. It says, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There will come a day when evangelization is no longer necessary, and there will come a day when mutual encouragement is no longer necessary. And that day is the day of the Lord. The day, the period of Christ's return, the end of the world, his judgment of, of unbelievers and Believers, the establishment of his everlasting kingdom will mean the end of the need for this. So it means that our lives and works as believers will also be judged, our rewards rendered, our verdict given. So I assume you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I assume you want to receive the rewards of the pleasure and the approval of God Almighty. I do. But you know, we, we, we need to want that for one another. As well, we need to not be selfish in our kingdom mentality of the kind of reception that we're going to receive when we stand before God. So, if we desire these things for ourselves and for others in the church, then we must encourage one another in the Christian life. And as we see the day of judgment drawing near, the signs of those times and the indicators of the impending return to Christ should motivate us. First and foremost, to zealous, sanctified, living in fellowship with one another. I readily, readily admit to a weakness in, in my own life in this. I need to spend more time meditating on and, and meditating on and looking for the return of Christ because he, this is a serious motivation for him. He says, "All the more as you see the day drawing near, even so much more." The impending return of Christ should motivate our mutual encouragement. So if you're like me and you recognize a lack of that, then let's repent of that and let's pray that the Lord would, would, would bring an awareness of that to our lives, both in our evangelism and in our mutual encouragement. So the Lord's table this morning and any other time ought to serve as a reminder that we need to be about the business of being purposefully concerned for one another. And in order to do that, we need to be intentional. We must be present. We have to have a sense of urgency about this. As the men get ready, we need to consider the Lord's table now. For some, it accomplishes different things. Some people say it's a, it's a re-sacrifice of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ for the sake of the renewed cleansing from sin and, and, and new infusing of grace. And I believe that the, the book of Hebrews negates that. For some, communion is kind of like a charging station for grace where it kind of mystically channels grace, although it's not a full-on re-sacrifice. It mystically channels blessing to us. We believe that the Lord's table is done in obedience 
and for the reason that Jesus gave in the upper room. This do in remembrance of me. And so it's in remembrance. It is a memorial of what Christ has done. And yet, it's not simply just, hey, let's, uh, let's remember this fact. When we think rightly and remember appropriately who Christ is and what he has done as he's charging us to do, then we find our convictions renewed. We find our lifestyles changed and invigorated. And our faith strengthened because we remember the person and work of Jesus and all the implication of those truths for us. Like the way in which we should draw near to worship. We need to do that rightly. The way that we need to hold fast to the confession of our faith. And the way that we need to be purposefully concerned for one another. This is for believers. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then, then just let the plate and the, and, and the tray go past. If you're a believer who's been harboring you know, bitterness or hanging on a sin or something like that and you haven't been willing to confess it and you're not drawing near right now with a sincere heart and in full assurance of the faith, then just let it pass. But if you're a baptized believer, you're in good standing with another church, with this church. Maybe you're visiting us from somewhere, but you have a, a home church that you fellowship with then please feel free to partake and be, be refreshed by this reminder and all the vast implications involved in it. Then come on down. As the, uh, as the elements are passed out, you could take one and then hold on to it and then we'll take them together as, um, after the guys have finished passing them all out. If, if you've been... Convicted, if the Spirit has impressed upon your heart an area that you've been negligent or, or sinful or disobedient in, then, then take this time to pray and confess and to rejoice in the access you have this morning. I'd encourage you to, to use this time to talk to the Lord about these five things, even if it's not a huge area of conviction. Talk to the Lord about these five things and ask for further strengthening, ask for further maturing in these areas. Give him praise, ask him for help as you need, and then consecrate yourself for the days ahead. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to do this, to remember the shed blood and broken body of Jesus. All that it means, bring it to mind, press it upon our hearts, fill us to an overflowing with an understanding a sober understanding and yet a joyful understanding of the Son of God slain on our behalf. We have joy in his resurrection, and we look forward to his return. In Jesus' name, amen.